Hey, and welcome to the Girl Live Unleashed podcast. I'm your host, LaToya Addy, and thanks for tuning in. Each week, I'll have conversations that give you real life tools to get clear, feel aligned, and be confident so that you can break through anything that holds you back from living life to your fullest potential. Welcome to today's episode of Girl Live Unleashed. Today, we will be talking with the mayor of Tustin, California. She goes by the name of Letitia Clark Bell. She is a recent newlywed, so congratulations to her. But on top of that, she is an award-winning public affairs professional with several years of experience in the public and nonprofit sector. She currently serves as the district director of public affairs and government relations for South Orange County Community College District. And in this role, she promotes educational opportunities and academic success for nearly 50,000 students. She has been recognized in Orange County um, with numerous awards and accolades. Some of them are the Orange County Family Magazine's Inspiring Moms. She is an Orange County Martin Luther King Hall of Fame inductee. And she um, is the Orange County Business Council Women in Business along with being one of Orange County's most influential people in 2017. And so on top of that, she was selected to be a part of the Women in Government program with 25 elected women leaders across the country. And through this program, she was featured in the February 2019 issue of Governing Magazine. She has received Four, so not one, but four, um, 40 under 40 awards for her work as a young professional and trailblazer in her community. She has served the Tustin community as a board member for the um, Tustin Community Foundation, the Tustin Street Fair Committee, and the Tustin Unified School District Superintendents Council and the School Site Council. Currently, she also serves as a volunteer board member for the Community Health Initiative of Orange County and Clinic in the Park. She is also a mother to two, or a mother of twins, not two twins, a mother of twins. And so let's hop right into our conversation. Okay, so I am here today again with Letitia Clark. And so I know her from high school. So I call her T. So if you hear me saying that, just know they are one in the same, okay? <laughs> and so T, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words? Sure, so, um, and I call you Toya, <laughs> right? Versus, you know, Miss Palmer Addy. Um, but um, as you probably know, Toya, I, I grew up here in Orange County and was born and raised, and so was my dad. And my grandparents came here when they were in their um, early 20s. And so we have history here in Orange County. Um, 
but had a really great childhood growing up and, but also was very used to being maybe, you know, one of a few in classes growing up in elementary and junior high school. And it really wasn't until I got to Tustin High School where I saw many more African-American students. And um, I know you can attribute to this too. In high school, we just had such a, an amazing experience because there were so many black students uh, that allowed for a very diverse um, uh, academic experience and contributed to us just feeling very confident, you know, at school. I think that helped me to do a lot of the activities that I did in high school as a cheerleader and homecoming queen and senior class president and really felt like I was looked at by my peers as being one of the same and as not being different. Uh, I went on to um, attend an, a historically black college university. I attended Xavier University in New Orleans, Louisiana. I studied political science there. And right after college, I started working for a council member in New Orleans. And a couple years later, uh, Hurricane Katrina struck the city. I found, found myself on the front lines of responding to that disaster because of my role um, at City Hall. And after that, I worked in a number of uh, government relations roles, doing some lobbying, uh, doing some community engagement work. And eventually um, that brought me just kind of full circle in um, doing go government relations, but also having this kind of nudging feeling of wanting to serve in a different role. And that would be in representative government to represent my community. And so politics is really the best way to be able to do that. So in Louisiana, I ran for like a party seat. Um, it was a, a seat on um, the Democratic um, Committee and there were 13 people that could be elected and I was like number 12 out of the 13, but it was a big feat for me because essentially I was an out of town girl. I wasn't from New Orleans. Uh, and so I didn't have name recognition essentially, but was able to win that election. And then that's kind of when I got the bug. Okay, hey, I can run for office. So I did that and um, went through a divorce uh, in, New, in New Orleans. And so decided to move back home to California where my family and many of my friends were and just wasn't willing to kind of let all that momentum go. Uh, I wanted to continue to capitalize on all the experience and education that I had. And I didn't mention that I got my master's in public policy and, and got a certificate at Harvard University. So I wanted to use all of that and now contribute that to my community. So eventually after living here for a few years, I just kind of hit the ground running, started serving in the community. And then when the opportunity to run came up, I had enough training and experience uh, to know what I needed to do uh, to, to be successful, hiring the right team, getting the right support, raising the right you know amount of money. And uh, that led to me winning um, that seat in 2016. And then I was just reelected in 2020. So that's kind of my personal professional life um, wrapped up. I have 13 year old twins, a boy and a girl, Corinne and Theodore. I work for a community college district during my day job. And for those out there, there that don't know that a mayor's job does not pay, uh, it does not pay me enough to uh, sustain my bills. So I have to have a day job. So I do have a full-time job in addition to uh, helping to run the city. So yeah, that's that's pretty much all it is right now. Okay, and so there, there's a lot to kind of unpack in there. And I hope that through our conversation, we really will dig deeper into some of the things that you definitely did mention. Um, and so 
you mentioned kind of getting involved into um, politics and things like that. Who would you say is your biggest role model that has shaped who you are today? So when I was growing up here in California, I never even thought about getting into politics. And it's mainly because I didn't have anyone directly in my life who was involved in that line of work that I thought it was even possible. I, I wanted to be an attorney because I saw Claire Huxtable do that on the Cosby show. And so I was like, oh, I, I like the way, you know, she speaks and the way she looks. And so, you know, I was like, hey, I want to be an attorney. And I decided that at five years old and kind of just carried it on. So I went to college thinking I was going to study law. Um, and then it wasn't until I learned about uh, the formulation of public policy that I thought, well, actually, that's the more of the realm I want to go into in formulating the law versus just, you know, defending the law. Um, but it really took me as, as, as a college student, I had an opportunity to intern and uh, work on some campaigns. And it's the first time I saw Black women in New Orleans, Louisiana, running for Senate and governor and mayor. And, you know, here I am seeing these beautiful women on these flyers and then learning that they won these seats and getting to meet them. That, that was the light bulb that went off for me that this is something that could be possible in my future. And then learning what the job actually entailed um, really motivated me to get um, deeper into politics. But to say I just have one mentor, I think is difficult because I didn't grow up thinking that this was something I wanted to do. But I look up to, you know, the, the big um, mentors for many, you know, like the Shirley Chisholm's, like the, you know, uh, the, the, the four women, you know, of, of politics throughout the, the country. But essentially, it was my boss that gave me my first job at City Hall in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her name was Renee Pratt, a Black woman. She was a strong woman. She was hard on all her staff. She had an all-female staff. Uh, essentially, she was my mentor, you know, my first mentor to show me this is how it's done. It can be done. You deserve a seat at the table. And although I would say pretty quickly, she wasn't the best boss I ever had because she was really, really tough on us. Um, but now looking back, she just had a very high expectations of what her role and what the staff that worked for her were supposed to do. So essentially, you know, I owe her, her movement in that role to me getting involved in politics and feeling like I can, I can do this job well. Okay. And so you kind of mentioned something and I want to make sure I'm taking notes as you're talking so that I can make sure that I go back to some of the things. Okay. Um, and while we're here, I guess I wanted to kind of um, dig into something. You said that you feel like, you know, she probably wasn't the best boss, but, um, you know, she was tough. And do you feel that um, maybe she had to kind of live up to kind of like being a black woman in office, like having a certain level. I know we call it kind of like black excellence, mm -hmm. but you know, I don't know if, or how some people's parents say, you know, because we're black, we have to try harder. We have to do stuff twice as better. Yeah. Um, you feel that that kind of maybe kind of played into her toughness as a boss. Oh yeah, most definitely. And just her, her demeanor overall, you know, she was just very, very hard and very strong and not what you would connotate with maybe, you know, working for a woman, uh, what, what, you know, maybe the stereotypes might be, 
But now, you know, thinking about it even more, which I don't talk about her often, which is interesting because I kind of just talk about my experience versus my relationship with her. But yeah, I think not only did she have the pressure of being a black woman, you know, she had the pressure of being a woman. So, you know, in New Orleans, it was a little different in that the the council was primarily black. It was a, a majority black city. However, being a woman uh, had its fair share of challenges because it was just kind of a men, male dominated arena. And if she didn't appear strong or didn't, um, you know, stay committed to her convictions and her values, she felt like she would easily be taken advantage of. And she knew that because she had an all-female staff, she also had to hold us to a very high standard because at the end of the day, we were her face and her ears and her eyes uh, when we weren't around her. So I think that's just, um, you know, how she had to be. I used to describe my experience kind of like with the, to the movie of uh, The Devil Wears Prada, just, you know, calls nonstop and just like nothing was ever good enough and just running around like I was crazy. But if you look at that movie, even at the end, you know, she had a lot of respect for her boss, even though it was a very difficult job. I remember my experience being, you know, somewhat similar, but in the political world. Uh, but yeah, thinking back, I think she did what she had to do. And essentially she influenced me for the better. Yes. And it's funny that you mentioned that movie because that's like one of my faves. I just yeah. love how I guess for me, I resonate with the boss because I'm like, you know, strive to be the best. And yeah. what you mentioned, being in a male dominated industry yeah. where, you know, it is definitely like cutthroat. Right. And I feel like politics can sometimes feel that way, um, maybe from people looking on the outside. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people contribute that kind of like to what you see in Washington. Um, yeah. But I feel like I love that politics now to me seems to be getting more um, local and also more relational mm -hmm. um, as we turn the tide. So I kind of like how you mentioned that. Mm -hmm. And so then you kind of mentioned some of your um, like wanting to leverage what you um, were doing in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of bringing that back home to Tustin. And so what would you say really was like the defining moment that made you decide to run for city council and then mayor? Um, so I think the defining moment in me just wanting to be committed to being involved in the political realm was um, going through a disaster like Katrina. Um, I had never been through anything like that in my life. I mean, I was young, I was 22 at the time, 21, 22. Uh, but essentially I lost everything. You know, I lost my car, my car was underwater, the roof caved in in my apartment, all of my clothes, all of my belongings were, were gone. And I continued to work for city hall and walk to work. I walked about like three, 2.3 miles every day to work. And we, I was staying in the Sheraton at the time uh, because they put up city employees in the local hotels. So I had a place to stay. But other than that, I was at the Goodwill for clothes. I was in the Red Cross line for money for food. I mean, it was just, I was also experiencing the disaster while trying to also serve the community. But the light bulb that went off for me was I saw my boss and us responding to all these people. And we're wondering, where are our senators? Where are our, where's the governor? Where's the president? And they were getting in gear, but they didn't come until way later. You know, we had such a responsibility to do everything immediately. And it helped me grow a greater appreciation 
for what higher office is. You know, when I got into politics, it's like, oh, you know, are you going to think about, and this was to my boss at the time, going for higher office and running for something else. But I learned that really the highest office is at the local level because you have the most accountability. You have, you have the opportunity to be the most accessible to the community. So although it may be seen as kind of like a stepping stone or not as prestigious of a role, it really, you can make changes immediately and you have the biggest opportunity to um, serve, um, you know, a, a very, um, you know, poignant and, and, and uh, structured part of the community, I guess. You know, when I think about our congressional members who represent 750,000 people, you know, right. it's like, how do you ever really get to know your constituents? In this role, I know a lot of people by first name. I see people in Target. I see people at the gas station. When I'm taking out my trash, people ask me about, you know, the council. So very accessible, very, you know, accountable. But um, that that's when the light bulb went off for me that not only did I want to stay in politics, but I really wanted to start and uh, commit my work at the local level. Yes, and it's really um, key that you say that because a lot of times people think like, oh, when they vote, like, oh, the president has the power. Right. Realizing, yes, they do. They make overarching um, laws and things like, and policies, um, and so does Congress. But the things that impact your day-to-day living Mm -hmm. are your local officials. So that's what I say. Like, I wish people paid more attention to those local races, because to me, I feel like that's, like you mentioned, just so important. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe that, you know, you should definitely practice your civic duty of voting, not only in presidential elections, but also for local elections as well. So that is um, just really key that you said that. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of touched on this a little bit when you were describing your boss about just women not really being um, like a lot of women um, in politics. And so Tustin itself has not had a woman hold the mayoral office in almost 20 years. So what does that mean to you and more specifically to the city of Tustin? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an honor. People ask me, you know, how does it feel to be the first African-American woman to be mayor? How does it feel to be the first female mayor in over 20 years? And, you know, on one end, it's kind of like, wow, we're in 2021 and we're still talking about first this and first that, you know, in some ways it's, it's a little discouraging, but in many ways, I mean, it's a great honor. It's a huge responsibility, I think, to set the tone for the future so that we don't go another 20 years without a female mayor. But you said something earlier that, you know, most people feel like politics is a male dominated arena and, and occupation, and it has been, but when more women get involved, it changes the tone, the things that women are most nervous about, about it being cutthroat, about money, you know, being influenced, about families being attacked when you're in politics. That changes when more women are at the table because we think differently. We operate differently. I have a good example of we're going through something kind of like a lawsuit thing with my counsel right now. We're trying to make negotiations. And my colleagues said, you know, they were really quick to sue. Like, let's sue. We got to fight for our community. And that was their, their view of how we fight for our community. While I was like, how does suing help if we're going to be in, you know, another fight with another city? But essentially they wanted to 
make a negotiation that said, let's, let's agree to have a non-aggression agreement. And I, I said, why do we have to call it a non-aggression agreement? Can't we call it a cooperative agreement? You know, just even changing the semantics about how I'm thinking about negotiations. They're thinking it's non-aggression and I'm thinking this needs to be a collaborative, cooperative endeavor. And so, you know, the more women we can pull into government, the easier it's gonna be for women to thrive and operate and feel comfortable to be our true authentic selves in government, which to me benefits the community because it's just a different way of thinking and a different way of representing people. And I think because more women and more people of color who have had to overcome barriers, have had to experience hardships, um, which, you know, many of us have, we can be empathetic in our, uh, in the way that we drive policy and uh, implement, you know, certain laws. So I think that's why you do see a different temperament in government is because we, we are seeing different faces and genders at the table. And to me, that only benefits our democratic process when it's more diverse. It doesn't mean it needs to be all women and all people of color, but that, that balance of diversity needs to be there. Um, so you almost forgot your question. Um, I, you, you answered it really well. I think you mm -hmm. talked about on a local level and then kind of as a whole. So um, just really kind of um, like what it means to you into the city of Tustin right. having um, a woman. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's a, a great weight and responsibility, but you know, I feel very fortunate to be a mayor and a black female mayor in this time. So although, you know, it's somewhat unfortunate that I'm the first after all these years, I feel like there would be no better time for me to be mayor. If I was if I was mayor 20 years ago, I would not be able to push things like equity and inclusion. I would not be able to pass a very strong uh, directive Black History Month proclamation. I would not be able to be as proud and Black and as female as I am, I believe, because it would have been difficult. I would have been thankful that people didn't um, consider me being different, you know, I, and I'm sure we can all kind of identify with that, that sometimes when you're trying to get that foot in the door, you don't want to be loud and proud. You just want to kind of make your mark. But within the environment that we're in now, I have an opportunity to be loud and proud and still do the work, still represent the entire community, but also really talk about how race and gender play a role in our overall politics and make some hopefully um, systemic changes that will live far beyond my my term and my service so that the next mayor could be, you know, someone who is um, maybe out and, and, and gay or out and, you know, a, a Muslim, you know, and just be able to be proud in whoever they are and serve effectively. Hopefully I can make those changes um, now. And I, I believe it is because of the environment that we're in right now. Yes, and it's important, um, that component. So mm -hmm. we know that the reason why we are seeing more, I guess, openness to kind of um, like being proud of being African-American, being black mm -hmm. um, women is probably because of the racial tensions that we which we know that in our nation is at an all-time high. Yeah. Um, and I know 
feel like not only is it at an all time high, but we also have um, things like our phones, which capture a lot more. Um, and so technology is really making it more readily available for us to see. Um, it's no longer like happening over there. It's happening kind of like everywhere in your face. Right. Um, and so what do you as a mayor kind of envision to make our communities more inclusive? Yeah, so great question. It's part of my uh, my goals. So um, the mayor has an opportunity to set goals every year. So I'm, I'm committed to working on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I'm starting a committee where we're going to um, select people from the community who have either expertise in this realm or just have a deep passion about this. Um, and we're, we're looking at everything from our uh, employee application to the makeup of our commissions, uh, to the directors of each department and talking about, you know, not only what it looks like now, so kind of doing an audit of where we are in terms of diversity, but then putting some intentionality behind action items. So we're gonna set some, some lofty goals um, about changing things and whether that's, you know, with our branding to make sure we look inclusive to the community so that they understand when I come to Tustin, I feel welcome. I feel like this place is welcoming to all religions and races and, and backgrounds. Um, you know, making sure that we're covering everything from LGBTQ plus uh, issues to racial issues to accessibility issues for, for those who are disabled or, you know, just covering the gambit. But um, I think we have to at least do the work to look into that and, and set some goals associated with that. So that's starting under my watch. Um, additionally, you know, just, just kind of putting it out there for continual conversation. So we have it scheduled to be on the agenda. We just had a presentation from the CEO of the Black Chamber about some studies that he's done with Cal State Fullerton to look at the county as a whole. So we're adopting um, some of the action items that they've uh, implemented. So, you know, we're just kind of remaining in the conversation, setting our own goals, doing our own audits, but that's my plan is to have it on the agenda. Like this is on the agenda to address while I'm mayor. Um, and I just know that if I don't do it, then it may not get done. So I'm really committed to uh, having this as a priority while I'm serving. Yes, and you mentioned like on your watch. And so I didn't even ask that at the beginning. So how long like is your tenure? Right, so great, great question. And you even asked, you know, when did I decide to run for mayor? So technically I have not run for mayor. So I've run for re-election on the city council and the way that it works in Tustin, which is how it works in the majority of the cities in Orange County, because we're considered smaller cities under 250,000 people in population, we rotate the mayor's position. So okay. essentially most well-working cities they just rotate it equitably. So it's based on a seniority. So when you are the most senior person on the council, then you get to serve as the mayor. And then it, it continues to rotate. And it's usually a one year term, as long as you're on the city council. So this, this past November, I was elected to serve another four year term on the council. And then my colleagues selected me as mayor for the 2021, 20, 22 year. Um, the caveat though, for a lot of cities and why it becomes political is that I have a council of five. If you only need three votes to get the majority. So in the past, and essentially for the past 20 years in Tustin, 
the men on the council have continued to vote for each other and have not voted for the women on the council. I had a colleague that just got reelected. She served on the council eight years before, was never selected mayor and only selected mayor pro tem her last year on the council. So she served all that time and never got to serve as mayor. So it's not a guarantee. Um, and it is um, an honor and, a, and a, a, a matter of respect from your peers, although it should be fairly automatic, it just isn't. Okay, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And thank mm -hmm. you for clarifying that. And so the woman that was on the council, correct me if I'm wrong, is her last name Gomez? Yes, that's Becky Gomez. Uh -huh. I tried to make sure that I looked at the whole makeup of, I haven't lived in Tustin for um, over almost, like it's going on, I think, 12 years almost. Yes, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. plus years. Um, uh -huh. But I still feel like I'm just with it because it is, you know, where I call home. Mm -hmm. um, and so we kind of talked about um, this a little bit, but why is diversity um, important in politics? And in what ways does diversity um, influence like political behavior, debates, and the outcomes that people see? I mean, I think a good example that I always like to bring up, we, we get certain grant from funds from the federal government and the state government. One grant program that I love is the CDBG program, which is the Community Development Block Grant. Every city has this grant program and you're allotted money based on, um, based on your population. So in the past, before I got on the council, and I knew about these funds because of my work um, in the city of New Orleans before, so I paid close attention to where the money was allocated. Almost 50% of the money went back into the city coffers, into the general fund, before I got there. These are grants that are supposed to be given to nonprofits in the community to do community work. So 50% of the money, let's say a million dollars. So $500,000 was going back into the city's general fund to do things like just street maintenance, graffiti cleanup, you know, things like that. Instead of actually going to the nonprofits to help with like food distribution or um, tutoring for kids or, you know, anything that had to do directly with our community services. And I mentioned that as an example because if you don't have someone that's connected to the community or has a diverse uh, way of thinking, you know, CDBG funds could also go to utility assistance or rental assistance. And, yeah. like and so if you don't understand just the different perspectives of, of life, of living in the community, then it's very difficult to allocate the right funds to serve the community. And so that's why diversity is so important on a body like a council, because you direct funding, resources, and um, essentially how to implement certain laws um, throughout the community. So it's, if everyone is retired and Caucasian and lives in a particular neighborhood, then they're going to have a certain view about what the actual problems are in the city versus someone who lives over on McFadden and Newport and has three jobs and has a family of six and lives in a two bedroom apartment. You know what I mean? They're going to have a different view. So that's why it's important to have people from different parts of the community, different positions in their life. Um, but what's, what's growing to be extremely difficult, especially in local politics, is getting that diversity because of your availability to serve, 
your um, availability to um, serve with probably minimal pay. So this, these are these are huge issues. You know, how do you get a working person to serve and give all this time for what re requires a almost like a full time role? You know, if they have to feed their family, right? But there's a lot of things like even the time of a council meeting. You know, some councils meet at like nine a.m. in the morning. Well, how can the public participate if most of your constituents work? So it's that mentality that why that diversity is so important. Um, and it's why people, once they get to that seat, they have to continually advocate for diversity, even if they find themselves in a very comfortable position where they like the time of the meetings, they like where the funding's going, they have to push for that because the, the different voices at the table are going to add just a different perspective. And that's all that we're doing as council members is looking at something and kind of either looking at it from our own perspective or based on the type of policymaker that you are, you're looking um, to the community and asking certain questions and asking for certain feedback because you understand that there's a, a certain level of um, difference of perspective uh, about all these issues. So that, that's why it's important in my view. Yeah, and you um, mentioned kind of like having a pulse on like mm -hmm. community. I think that that's definitely um, important for um, local officials to have keep you, and you said it verbatim, I almost believe, um, like keep the conversations going. Like you have to be constantly involved in various conversations. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's definitely important. Um, and then, so we know that in diversity and inclusion definitely have immense impact on um, local government. But what would you say, so I'm gonna read off a statistic. So women of color represent 7% of all members of the US Congress, 9% um, of statewide elected um, executive officials, and just 6% of all state legislators nationwide. And this is despite you know being 10% of the US population. So does it matter that women of color are underrepresented in um, elected offices? Why or why not? Yeah, it, it matters just because of the reason I just spoke of why that diversity is important. You're going to find that black women advocate differently and for different things than their, their white counterparts, just because of their experience with their families. I mean, let's take social justice, criminal justice reform, for example. Many, it, it, the, the, it's not apples to apples when you're talking about white women and black women. They have very different experiences in, um, with their families, in their neighborhoods. So a white woman is not going to advocate for criminal justice reform the way a black woman may because either she's experienced herself or she's seen her, her sons or husbands or you know significant others or fathers experience the same thing. So our, our difficulty within the criminal justice system so the way that we advocate um, is going to be a, a lot different. And that's why it's important to have us in those seats. And when you're talking about uh, these state positions, the, these are the positions that influence uh, really broad law um, and really that, you know, can help influence even the selection or appointment of judges uh, within the state. So that's really important. But I'm going to tell you the hurdle is money. The hurdle is running for these statewide positions uh, that, that include more, more voters 
are more influential in some ways in, 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 um, in passing laws. And so it is just more expensive to run on a statewide basis. Um, for example, to run on my council seat, the first time I raised $50,000 and I outraised my opponents almost by 50%. This time I had to raise 120,000 and I was only the, um, like the third highest uh, fundraiser in my race of nine people when I ran for reelection. So 120,000 may sound like a lot or it may not sound like a lot to some people, but if I wanted to run for assembly, I would has, have to raise at minimum about a half a million dollars mm. to be competitive. And so if, you know, I think I could do that, but man, what the other people I would have to bring to the table, the other, the, the amount of donations that I would have to generate to just be competitive is on a whole nother level. So for a lot of women, especially women of color who don't have access to just unwielding amounts of capital or large donors that can write a $20,000, $30,000 check, it's a very difficult um, feat to overcome. It, it's doable, but I, I can tell you right now, that's what keeps most uh, people of color and women uh, specifically out of the game and running for um, these statewide positions. Hmm, that's interesting that you say that. I wouldn't have, um, you know, thought that that would be a challenge. So sure. that, um, something that I definitely will myself look into because yeah. I'm really interested in like finding like where the money is going and all yeah. of that kind of stuff. So that um, component is really um, interesting. Just look up organizations like Emily's List or, um, you know, they have one in California, it's called uh, California Women Lead. There are organizations being created specifically to support women at the state level. And it's because of this gap that we have of seeing women and women of color in these state seats, that there are organizations that are finding that they are just, certain issues are being left out of the conversation simply because we don't have women or uh, women of color at the table. So there are organizations who are getting behind um, state candidates or trying to prep them to run for state office so that they can have the capital and funding needed. So you have organizations running uh, campaigns on behalf of other people so that they can raise the money that's needed. Uh, but just look up organizations like that. That's our whole commitment is to making sure more women get elected to state office. Okay. And that that was definitely going to be like one of my um, next questions. Like, what do you find is like empowering more women to be in politics. So that organization, that definitely answers um, that question. Mm -hmm. so, um, so the US ranks, and it, it, it always baffles me when I look up like our rankings, um, mm -hmm. certain stuff, um, especially being in Georgia, um, because typically we rank low on a lot of things, right. which is funny, but not funny. Yeah. Um, but the U.S. ranks 75th out of 193 countries when it comes to women in politics. And we know that we've seen an increase in women um, and women of color. Um, but what are some ways that you can encourage young women to go into um, public service? Um, I would say just, just start right away. Just really consider um, building a career in, in um, the public sector as well. I think that gives you a really good um, idea of what it what it requires and and all what government does. I mean, I think a lot of people get into politics coming from the public the pu uh, private sector 
or the nonprofit sector, but you know, working or at least interning or doing some kind of apprenticeship within government, then you have an idea of like all the things that government is um, meant to function to do. And I think sometimes just as, like you said, we don't take these civics classes anymore very seriously. We don't have an abundance of them. The majority of Americans don't know what city hall is expected to do, what our state government is expected to do and what our feds are expected to do. But we have a mandate to do certain things, to carry out certain services, um, whether it's profitable or not. And so sometimes we get that mixed up of, you know, like every service should be profitable certain things are just should be kind of like a human right. There's a, a, a debate right now, I serve on a state water board about water being a human right. So if, if it's going to be a human right, it means it needs to be accessible, affordable, clean. And that means that the state has the obligation to pour all their resources into making sure that everyone has that ability to have clean, safe, affordable water, but everyone doesn't feel like that. So um, that is something kind of, you know, just another example of why government has a certain function. Um, they're not meant to do it all. They're meant to you know, partner with other organizations to do a lot of things, but I think working in government would be a great step. Uh, staying informed and staying informed in, in things just not on like CNN and Fox News, but, but really reading and, and following people's careers. Um, I, I think that, that's an important way to, to get involved. Um, and then also know that there's ways to, to serve and get involved without running for office. Like I, I'm just a big proponent of you can work in, you can have a career in government and do well. I started a girls in government summit a couple of years ago to specifically talk to girls in our community about all the jobs that are available in government. Our city manager makes more than $250,000 a year. That's a good paying job here in California. That, that's essentially being a CEO of um, a city. And I actually have to go in a couple of minutes, but um, uh, you know, that is like running a city and who, what, what girls in our families know about these jobs? Do they know about what it means to be a director of public works or parks and recreation or, you know, um, just, just having a career in government. So I really encourage people to look at those careers that you don't always have to be a doctor or a lawyer to do very well and make a good salary that you can actually work in the public sector and do um, extremely well and have a lot of, um, security in your career. So I, I would always advocate for that. Okay. And that, that definitely is important. And I love the fact that you have um, created a conversation with those young women to really mm -hmm. into that because first is having to know about it. Right. So that is definitely important. And so I do know that you have to go and I want to be respectful of your time. And so just one last question before we go, what would you say, or what does it mean to you to be a change maker? Um, I think it means deciding early, you know, what you want your legacy to be. And so it means not doing things that are just going to have a temporary fix, but it means doing things that are probably seen as difficult and have many barriers, but continuing a conversation or an idea, nevertheless, knowing that you may not even see, see the results while you're in that position of influence, but that the results will benefit people, you know, long beyond your tenure. And to me, that's what a real change maker does. You, you do things and say things that will have a lasting impact that won't just um, impact the moment, but will have the effect of, you know, becoming a movement and going beyond your service. So um, I think when you're, you, when you're really talking about demonstrating change, it should be for the long haul. It should be a long-term 
plan and you have set up the, the structure and the foundation so that somebody can take the baton and run with it and only, you know, just go farther with it. So uh, those are the things I'm trying to do. And, and that's, that's part of, part of that process is taking your ego out of it and just really thinking about the purpose of why you're there. And I think for a lot of young people that that's hard to identify, you know, in your young adulthood, what is my purpose? But once you figure that out, then you know that you're there to do a job, you take it seriously, and you know that you may not even get the credit for it, but that the change is the most important part. So if you can live by that, then you'll actually definitely be a change maker in your community. And so T, I want to say thank you again. I know you are super, super busy, um, but I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Um, and so how should the listeners reach out to you if yeah. they have questions or... Well, thank you. Um, and I'm, I'm equally proud of you. Um, I have just seen you really be committed to being an advocate for your family and for the underserved in your community. And even though we know you're from Tustin, you're doing uh, all those great things out there in Georgia. Um, <laughs> that's right, go Tillers. Um, I would just follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram and uh, my Facebook page is Tustin Mayor Letitia Clark. And um, on Instagram, I'm just Letitia C. Clark. You can email me at lclark at tustinca.org. I love to talk to people. If you want advice about how to run for office, if you want advice about how to get more involved, I'm, I'm there. I, I just think it's paying it forward by planting a seed for you because somebody did that for me and encouraged me and let me know that I could do it. So if we, if we talk, you're not going to hear me say that you can't do it and that it's impossible and that somehow I'm so special that I made this happen. No, I'm going to tell you that you can do it. You should do it get started like yesterday and I'm here to support you and whatever, you know, your goals are. So please reach out and it was a pleasure to be on your show. Yes. So you have a wonderful weekend. Um, thank you again. Thank you. Take care. If you found value in this episode, please share it and use the hashtag girl live unleashed. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review. And as always, Remember to break through anything to get clear, feel aligned, and be confident in living life to your fullest potential.